0: Welcome to Sunday Morning at First Presbyterian Church. I'm Pastor Danny Deeth, and in response to the events of the amazing resurrection at Easter, it now becomes our job to discern how we respond to the events of Holy Week and Christ being raised from the dead. We are to discern how we are being led to live, to change our lives, to care for others, to welcome others to Christ's table. This is our call and our challenge. Let's do this together. Come on in.
1: Our first lesson this morning is taken from Genesis 45. Verses 1 through 8. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Our God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve you, a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his houses and ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Good morning. Surely the Lord is in this place. This is the second scripture reading, the second lesson from Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. May the Lord bless the reading of his word for us uh, this morning. It is good to be here with you this morning at First Presbyterian Church in this beautiful sanctuary to see so many of you that I've known for so much of my life. Uh, It's a privilege to be here. I pray Danny and his wife are uh, having some refreshing time this morning as they are away. Uh, Before I get into the sermon, I want to update you a little bit about the ministry I'm involved with. It's called the Presbyterian Reform Commission on Chaplains. And I'm a part of a team of five uh, different men, all retired chaplains. Uh, They're all military retired chaplains from the various services. I'm the civilian having retired as the hospital chaplain at Piedmont here four years ago. That's hard to believe it's been that long, but uh, we oversee uh, 326 military and civilian chaplains across the nation. And uh, it's we try to visit them every year. We try to keep them from uh, uh, having religious liberty issues where they minister. We counsel them. We encourage them. We educate them. uh, We visit them each year. I was just out at Fort Riley in Kansas and Fort Leavenworth a couple of weeks ago to see some of our chaplains who were out there. Uh, We've got uh, the senior chaplain at the United States Military Academy at West Point. He's preaching in that grand chapel today. Keith Good, we have a chaplain at the United States Naval Academy, a Navy chaplain, uh, uh, Chaplain Lee, he's there at the Naval Academy. We have a couple of chaplains at the United States Air Force Academy. So uh, at those strategic places of ministering to these young men and women who are gonna be our future leaders, uh, we're getting the chance to give spiritual input in their lives. And it's, it's just quite a blessing to be able to do that. Uh, We've got chaplains, uh, one is in airborne school. He just finished his first week, texted me, thanks for praying for me, Mike. Got two more weeks. Uh, We've got another one that was injured. He hopefully will be able to come back and finish his jump week out there. And uh, last year I was able to pin on airborne wings for two of our 82nd Airborne chaplains who were then sent right back over to Poland uh, with the 82nd Airborne that was then in Poland. Uh, I think they've been pulled back now, and 101st, I believe, is still over there. So uh, it's a great privilege to minister. And we've got a chaplain in a prison in Alabama that is just uh, uh, redeeming that place. It used to be called Bloody Bibb County Prison in in Western Alabama, just below Birmingham. And he has gone in there, and, and the Lord has used him. Some of the inmates now are taking seminary courses, During COVID, the inmates took over leading worship, winning some of the other inmates to Christ, discipling them. And they've decided instead of just moping around and and being sad about their plight, that they're gonna use this time of incarceration for the glory of God. And it's just amazing to see what God is doing. That's going on with sports teams. That's going on in hospitals and hospices. Uh, we've got seven corporate chaplains. That's a great rise in the number. Uh, two years ago, we had zero corporate chaplains. Now companies are awaking to the need to have chaplains in the workplace. It seems as church attendance goes down, corporate chaplaincy is growing because there's a need for that spiritual input that people are not getting and businesses are seeing the need for it. And uh, executives of these companies are seeing the need for that, so it's it's quite exciting to be out there and to talk to these men and to be able to visit them uh, in their sites. And I feel so privileged to do it. I also am an adjunct professor at two seminaries: Erskine Theological Seminary and Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh. I spoke up there for a week uh, last summer in August did a a week-long intensive class, and it was intensive eight to five every day for a week, about wore me out, but it was delight to be around these these seminary students who were considering and working out God's call in their life. Uh, Just recently did something very interesting as well. I flew to Chicago for a day. This had been planned, Uh, did four lectures in front of a videotape machine, and uh, had four lectures videotaped as part of a structuring of a chaplain course for the Ukraine. I've already been told 150 students in Ukraine have already been through the chaplain course already since that time, uh, as they see the need for chaplaincy in their military, in their armed forces, and even in their hospitals and in their their incarceration places. So... Um, quite a privilege, and I, I'm just pinched myself. I can't believe I'm able to do this, and uh, and that's just my retired job, too. So um, anyway, glad to be here this morning. We appreciate your prayers for that, and glad to talk to you any more about that if you're interested in hearing about that. It's, uh, it's quite fascinating. I'll be leaving from uh, Memphis. We do our annual Presbyterian Reform Commission on Chaplain Training, where we're bringing about 125 chaplains, and we will train them Each year, we try to sharpen their swords, so to speak, and encourage them. And we can ask your prayers for that time as well. Uh, But I want to go into the the message this morning the divine providence of God. Uh, That word, providence, you see it all over Scripture. It's one of the important doctrines of Holy Scripture of theology is the divine providence of God or the divine sovereignty of God. And I wanted to address that today uh, with us. Uh, it's a crucial doctrine, maybe the most important one under the gospel, the uh, doctrine of salvation uh, that we have is this, the doctrine of the providence of God. And so uh, I want to quantify quali- qualify what I'm going to be talking about this morning. I'm going to be Uh, using some illustrations, uh, extolling and highlighting as examples some some people from history that were in extremely adverse situations. Uh, And that's where they learned and really applied this doctrine of God's providence in their life. And I, I pray the Lord will use this in your life as he's used it in mine. And I also wanna give credit as well for this message. One of the ministers who's influenced me greatly over the years uh, passed away Friday a week ago. He was in a terrible car crash. Dr. Harry Reeder of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, one of the largest Presbyterian churches in the nation, uh, was in a car crash. And Harry has had an influence in me. And uh, I want to just in in his honor and credit him with some of the information I'm sharing because he turned me on to some of these things many years ago as I would sit under him and get to know him. Uh, And I would consider him one of my distant mentors uh, in my ministry as well. So uh, as I talk about these examples, uh, I'm not highlighting everything about these these men I'm gonna reference here as illustrations of the divine providence of God, but I'm gonna highlight uniquely their spiritual life and their understanding of the Lord and how they applied that in their life. Uh, Dr. Reeder would tell us as chaplains, he spoke at one of our training events, we went up to Virginia, Uh, he took us to where Andrew Jackson died, uh, and, and then he took us to where he was shot, Uh, We went over the battlefields of Northern Virginia, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville. And Dr. Reeder would always say, you know, you gain insight by being on site. And I follow that. I love that. And I found that so true. Uh, I love reading history. I love reading biographies. But when I go to places where those stories took place, it just adds another dimension it Uh, i i trust maybe some of you have experienced that i love going to israel and experience that you read about all these places in scripture and all these events but to go there and then to read it just sends shivers up your spine to be right there and to read what actually happened and to stand in those locations uh stand in the jordan river to stand up on the Temple Mount, uh, to be at the places where Christ's ministry around Galilee, to ride a boat across the Sea of Galilee, and to look out and to read these uh, accounts of what happened in historical times. There is insight to be gained by being on site, and I wanna encourage you of that. Um, I wanna talk about, first of all, one of my uh, heroes that I've grown to appreciate here in my later years. Uh, he's a, a former Union general from the Civil War, uh, Joshua Chamberlain. Maybe you know something about Joshua Chamberlain. He was from Maine. Uh, very impressive. Uh, Bangor, Maine specifically. I've had the privilege of going up to Bangor where he lived and where he went to college. And uh, he barricaded himself uh, Uh, He wanted to go. He had some pulls to go into the military as a young man. He didn't go for it. His mother wanted him to be a a preacher. He went that route. His father didn't think much of that at the time. Uh, But he needed to know Greek. He barricaded himself. I can't imagine this myself uh, for three months and studied Greek and Hebrew in order to pass the entrance exams to get into seminary to become a minister. Uh, I had to have somebody caning me the whole time to learn Greek and Hebrew as I went through seminary. That's the only way I passed, and I appreciated that. I needed that, but uh, Joshua Chamberlain, it shows you a little bit about the kind of man he was. He was brilliant. He knew nine languages, knew Greek and Hebrew, would read the Bible in the original languages, and then he became the professor of what they called Revealed religion which means theology, a professor of the Bible at Bangor Theological Seminary up in Bangor, Maine, up near, uh, if you you go up to Maine to Acadia National Park or along the Maine coast, you'll come across Bangor. And uh, when the war started up, he did, he felt strongly. He was an abolitionist, felt he needed to do his part. And if you watch the movie, Gods and Generals, General uh, Joshua Chamberlain was profiled, as one of the uh, men picked out in that. He commanded the 20th Maine at Gettysburg. I've been to Gettysburg. I've walked through the areas where he commanded his men. uh, Little Round Top, on the second day of Gettysburg, it was a, a height, and he was attacked by the Southern forces numerous times, and he repulsed those, his men repulsed those numerous times. And at the end, he ran out of ammunition, and he yells, fix bayonets, were charging downhill with bayonets. Can you imagine doing that in that day and time? And they they did, and they repulsed and kept, uh, kept the Union line strong at Gettysburg. If you move forward into the war, later into the war, uh, at Petersburg, he found himself, after numerous battles, he survived. He's at Petersburg, is a stalemate at Petersburg. General Grant is in command, and he sends an order through another general I want the 20th Maine to make a frontal assault on that Confederate unit up ahead. And he looked up ahead and all he saw were bayonets, bristling cannons aimed right at him. He sent back word to his commander, I don't think this is a good idea, uh, a frontal assault on this. Uh, Look at those bayonets, bristling, look at those cannons, we won't survive. And, um, And the order came back. General Grant wants that hill taken. You go for it. You obey orders. And he did. He ordered that assault. He made that assault. He was severely wounded in that assault. And he was wounded so bad that he had to have surgery. And this would plague him the rest of his life. Uh, The the surgeons developed what I understand. They developed the catheter Uh, because of his injuries. He had to have some kind of device and It was on Chamberlain, which is the first one that device was ever used on. So if you've ever been in the hospital and had to use one, you can thank Joshua Chamberlain for breaking ground on that. Uh, And that plagued him the rest of his life. Um, But he was wounded in that attack. And uh, Alice Trulock, a historian at the University of North Carolina history professor, wrote an incredible biography on him, which I have and have read, and I commend it to you. It's called In the Hands of Providence. She used that title. I don't think she was really a believer, a Christian, but she noticed all through Chamberlain's letters, he's used the term providence, trusting in God's sovereignty. Providence was used. And so uh, he always used that word, and, and so she used it as the title of that book on him. And if you had received a letter from Joshua Chamberlain during his life, he went on and became governor of Maine. He went on, I believe uh, he may have served in Congress at some point, but twice he ran for vice president of the United States with uh, General Hancock. They lost twice. And he was, uh, all the political writers of the day said it's because of what he did at Appomattox. He survived the war was given charge of the Union forces to accept the surrender of the Confederate soldiers. And of course, Grant was very gracious to General Lee, allowed them to have a mule, allowed them to have a firearm to take back they could use for hunting, to provide food for themselves. And as they were marching out, their final march away, the Confederate soldiers, you can imagine, if you've ever lost a sporting event You know how bad that feels. We don't like to lose as Americans. None of us do, and they didn't like it back then. And you can imagine how sulking they were to know they are defeated, surrendered, and as they marched off, they expected to get catcalls and yelled at by the Union and cursed at. And and, uh, as they did, uh, Joshua Chamberlain told his men, respect them, and he ordered uh, uh, honor arms which means they put their arms in a certain way of honoring the the defeated Confederate forces. They didn't do a dance and and taunt them. Uh, They honored them as they marched off, again, showing you the character of Joshua Chamberlain. If you received a letter, he always wrote at the end of his letters, DV, which is short for Deo Valente, which means God Willing. And he referred back to James, where James says, don't brag about where you're going. If God wills, that may happen. But you don't need to be bragging about the future. God may have other plans for you. And so he would always sign his letters, DV. Uh, and he constantly refers to this in speeches. And after the war, he would give speeches about the war and speeches about current events uh, around the nation. It was very popular at the time. But at Petersburg... Uh, before he launched that assault, which would severely wound him, he wrote a letter to his wife. Her name was, uh, he called her Fanny, dear Fanny. Her name was Francis. Says, I am not of Virginia, but Virginia is of me. My blood stains its soil. Will you join me in asking the Lord that through my sacrifice, men might be set free from bondage? But know that if I die in perfect peace, uh, he says, know that I die in perfect peace because of what Christ did at Calvary. Oh, the blessed in knowing your sins are forgiven. Joshua Chamberlain truly just trusted in the providence of God. Uh, he put his life on the line and trusted that. And I ask the question today, what would you do in that situation Sometimes we're asked to do crazy things by people in authority. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering if I would have said, you know, he'd tell his wife, honey, I'm, I've registered a complaint, I registered a protest, knowing this charge on the enemy uh, cannot possibly succeed, uh, but I was made to do it anyway. I think I'll hire a lawyer and file a lawsuit against the United States government, the U.S. military. You know, um, that's kind of our attitude today. But can you imagine... Uh, what he faced there. Uh, he eventually has a nice long life, lives into like 1913, 1914, dies in peace. Uh, he writes that he had a big God who is sovereign over everything everywhere. Is that true of you today? I ask that question every day. Am I willing to trust the providence of God today? Uh, I want my God to be big, knowing he's sovereign over everything, because that's what the Bible says. I've said this before from this pulpit. One of my seminary professors always told us, the Bible is always a return to reality. There's a lot of voices out there clamoring for you every day, but you want reality, you come back to the scriptures. He knew, Joshua Chamberlain knew and knows that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. We can't always figure it out. He uses crooked uh Uh, Not perfect people to sometimes work his will out, and we don't always understand it. But God does make his roses out of our ashes in a broken world. That much is true. And let me switch a little bit and back up 13 more months in the war before Gettysburg in May uh, 3rd of 1863. Another illustration I'm going to bring forward. Uh, it's a great movement in military history, uh, the Battle of Chancellorsville there in Virginia. I've stood on that battlefield site and walked it over and been to the museum and all the aspects of it. The Army of Northern Virginia is there. They're in the wilderness there. It's woods all around, a few open fields. Uh, the Northern Army of Northern Virginia is outnumbered three to one, Lee's Army. He's got four corps, but he's still outnumbered three to one in order to uh, win. So wasn't sure what to do. The, the Union Army wasn't sure what they're going to do. And they, as they're watching the Confederate Army, uh, Lee dismisses Stonewall Jackson and his second corps are dismissed. And they look like they're in retreat one morning, marching south away from the battlefield. Uh, Jackson marched his men 14 miles on a flank march in the rear of the Union Army. They thought they went over a hill and they couldn't hear them anymore and they thought they were disappeared forever. Uh, and then at dusk, as the sun's starting to go down, Oho Howard, General Oho Howard of the Union Army, he's got his men out. They've stacked arms, they're cooking supper, uh, they're on one end of a field. And then all of a sudden, about 7 o'clock, 7.30 at night as the dusk is coming in, they look up in the woods, they hear noise, and they all of a sudden they see deer, rabbit, uh, squirrels, and foxes come running out of the woods. Can you imagine what's going on? If you've ever had that experience, you know, something's pushing those animals out of the woods. And it was Stonewall Jackson's second corps coming through the woods. And they show up and they give a rebel yell and charge through and defeat the Union Army. They were unprepared, caught cooking um, with an enormous rebel yell. And Jackson, uh, as they won that battle, they won that individual situation. He always does what he he always did. He went out and reconnoitered for the future. He didn't stop with that. He didn't rest. He went out with a couple of his men. He was starting to feel feverish. He put on his dark raincoat over his uniform as he rode out to reconnoiter what what he was going to do next. And he was feeling feverish from that. And, um, And he figured out, you know, what he needed to do next. He was coming back in. It was almost dark. He could barely be seen. One of the Confederate units looked out, and they had just been charged by a Union cavalry unit. So they were on edge expecting a counter assault, and they saw. And they fired a volley at these group of men. They yelled back, we're friends. And the commander uh, who ended up teaching at Auburn University one day of that North Carolina unit said, it's a lie, they're trying to trick us, fire again. And they fired again. And they cut down Stonewall Jackson. He got four bullets alongside his arm uh, and he went down. I've been to that site where he went down there and they carried him back across to where uh, he was going to be. They had to remove his arm and uh, they put him in a place called Guinea Station. And he was there at Guinea Station surrounded by generals and chaplains. He loved chaplains. Uh, General Jackson did. And um, and, and he, uh, he knew time was getting, and his wife was able to join him. He knew time was getting short for his life. Here he is, 36 years old, And he's one of the most famous men in the world. And his wife shows up and uh, speaks to him. He's got pneumonia setting in. That was what's causing the fever. That is what's going to kill him eventually. And on May 10th, his wife arrives. The Dr. Hunter McGuire there is the surgeon. Tells her, I think today's the day. It's a Sunday morning. Uh, I don't think you will last the day unless God intervenes. And she goes into his room, and I've been in his room right there, and everything has stayed the same if you've ever been there. And and the rangers give you a talk about the last hour of Stonewall Jackson and uh, generals and chaplains around, and, and she looks at him and says, Thomas, when you die, uh, they say today is the day you will die. Where do you want to be buried? And he kind of thought about it. And he said, I, I want to be buried in Lexington where he taught at VMI and where he met his wife and uh, the sweetest years were there for them. And she says, what if I were to tell you today is the day, Thomas? Uh, what do you think of that? And he said, Mariana, if it is God's will for me to die today, then I prefer to die today. And I will, won't I be the, uh, infinite gainer to be translated into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have I not always asked the Lord that I could meet him on the Sabbath? Today is the Lord's day. His favorite text had been preached that day. He then said, isn't God kind to us in his providence? I don't know if I'll say that on the day. I die. I hope I will. But uh, what a perspective of life and death trusting that God was totally in control. There's a passage, I believe it's in Hebrews, it says, lift up your holy hands in prayer. Well, Jackson would do that. He thought, that's the literal, I need to do that. And as he rode into battle one day early in the war, he got a finger shot off. That cured him of lifting his hands in battle for the day. But listen to the context of of this. He was the most famous man in the world at that time. Up north, parents used to scare their children uh, to bed to go back to sleep. They would say, if you don't go to sleep, I'm going to bring General Thomas Jackson in here after you. And uh, they would scamper off to sleep. Uh, He had just performed what General Lee said was the ultimate military maneuver. General Rommel in World War II, General Patton would copy him. Norman Schwarzkopf would copy him in Desert Storm in the early 90s uh, with Iraq, uh, with 3rd Brigade in Iraq, the famous hammer and anvil blow. Pat knew Robin copied him, and, 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 and Jackson's perspective was there's no angst. There's no recriminations. This is just the matters of war in the hand of God. Haven't I always asked the Lord that I could meet him and on the Sabbath And today is the Sabbath. Isn't God kind to us in his providence? That's what he said to his wife. Um, So you're backing up one more year. uh, This is my last illustration on this topic of God's providence of us. Is the Battle of Fredericksburg in Virginia. Uh, The Union Army was up on a hill. uh, The Confederate Army was up on the hill. The Union Army crossed, crossed the Rappahannock River and are trying to approach them Uh, And I'm giving these examples because these were out of adversity, and that's usually where we struggle with the providence of God and adversity in our lives. I know it's been for me. I would think it's been for you as well. Uh, None of us are immune to adversity. I think we've all experienced adversity in one form or fashion or another, and these examples remind me of God's providence and and my perspective as a Christian man, how I need to handle this. But the, the messages come into General Lee. He has his military correspondence put on his desk, he has his private correspondence put on his bed, and he goes through his military and he sits down and he begins to read the first letter of private correspondence. And it's a personal met message. Uh, he dismisses his aide, Colonel Taylor. And he sees the message, and he reads it, and he weeps. And it's a letter from the family that his most Christian, most spiritual daughter has passed away from cholera. He's lost a daughter, and he didn't get to see his daughter. He has seven children, four daughters, none of which got married, by the way. And uh, Annie has just died of cholera. Walter Taylor, he sees him, he hears him weeping and praying in there. And Lee writes a letter to his wife, which we still have. And in this letter, and again, this shows the providence of God. He says, he writes to his wife, Mary. Dear Mary, I have often prayed this cruel war would soon be over and our family be joined together. But God in his divine providence has decreed other. Yet in the midst of this great tragedy, which has struck us, Would you join me in giving praise to our God? For of our seven children, he has taken, we know that she has taken the one that was ready to meet him. What a perspective, huh? In the midst of adversity, let me turn this to us. Do you see how a man is undergirded by this doctrine of divine providence? See how important it is to have that when all the wheels are falling off of your life and you're wondering what's going on, You know, we we need to say, I'm not doing it my way. I'm sorry, Mr. Frank Sinatra. That's a great song, but it's not truthful. We're not doing it my way. We need to do it God's way. That's what the Bible calls us to. That goes against the grain of our culture. Uh, We wanna do things our way, but God calls us to a higher calling and a better way. This is God's doing it his way. He has promised everything will be for his glory and for my good. I read this scripture and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Doesn't mean all things are good, but God's going to work out things for good one way or another. We can trust that even if it costs us our life. That's a that's a biblical truth that I'm working to build into my life and I wanna push you to build into your life. Not, not all things are good, but uh, the sovereign of God is marshaling all things for His glory and ultimately for your good. Romans 5 tell us, we rejoice in our sufferings. They're good for us. God uses those things to build into us, to make us more like him. Uh, The word of God introduces us to the God of the word that he is worthy to put our trust in him. God is not only fickle, uh, he is not trivia. He has made a promise to you and whatever is necessary or whatever is occurring in your life, you may not see it, but God is doing something there. You can trust that. And you can count on that. And you think about the passage that Alice wrote in Genesis about Joseph. What is it that keeps Joseph going? I mean, he had bad luck most of the first half of his life. It went from best to bad and more worse. Uh, He couldn't catch a break. And then all of a sudden, things start opening up. And at the very end of his life, towards the, the end of his life, he becomes prime minister essentially of Egypt and looking after Egypt and even his brothers as drought descends on the land. He works with them. Uh, The brothers who know him put him in a pit uh, and and then even he he acted right, but Potiphar's wife wanted him and he turned away from that. He did the right thing, but he still got in trouble for all that and got thrown in prison but he doesn't go and have a pity party. He ministers to the two men in prison. They forget about him. His friends forget about him. Uh, and, and so I think there's a real key there. Uh, don't fear what you meant for evil. God meant for good. That was Joseph's perspectives. And that's repeated again in Genesis chapter 50, one of the very last verses of Genesis. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Uh, That's something we need to remember uh, today and can change our life. So you see how the the doctrine of divine providence comes into the moment. Uh, I want to encourage you to be theologians, to study the scriptures, to know God and know his promises that are secured in Jesus Christ. It'll change your life. The doctrine of divine providence is the most significant doctrine right behind the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. In order that when things fall apart around you, when disappointment comes to you, when challenges come to you in this broken world we live in, we can stand firm as men and women by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has promised to work all things for good, for his glory, and for your benefit and you, you might ask, how can I be this kind of person? How can I be this kind of theologian? Paul writes in the New Testament, he says, he tells all the readers, he says, and, and the people around him, imitate me, Paul writes. And I think we need to imitate people, like I've just read. I think it's good to have some historical mentors. I urge you to do that if you don't have any historical mentors that you can draw from to encourage and inspire you in your life and in the lives of your children. I think also we need imitating of current models as well. Imitation, instruction, and intercession. Most of what we learn in life is through imitation. I see it in my children and I see it in my grandchildren. It's kind of scary. Uh, But learn to speak as children, the Bible says, Christ says, children are born imitators, uh, for good and for bad, that is. And uh, no vocabulary cards, uh, we learn by imitation and select models for your life. I've got models from history. Some of these are them, not all of them. I've got models from the present life that, I, that mentor me and encourage me and inspire me to a higher calling. Um, and the last chapter hadn't been written Uh, about my life or yours but um but you should have mentors around you and uh, i've got a band of brothers that i minister with every week they can throw a flag in my life and call me uh they know me inside out i I knew these men in college i have a work group of five men that we are very close with each other uh, not only as workmates but as brothers in christ and i appreciate each of these men we share, and even though we don't live in the same city, we have Zoom calls every week together and get to know each other, and we will see each other next week in Memphis. Uh, so I would encourage you to have these kind of mentors in your life. Perhaps some of you do, and you can appreciate that, and I would push you for that. Models from history, models from the Bible, biblical characters, as well as mentors and bands of brothers. That's what we need. We need this encouragement and we need to grow in understanding the divine providence of God. I commend that to you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that does not stutter. And we we ask you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, to help us to grow more and more in understanding of how you can be sovereign over this broken world and that you care about each of our individual lives, that you're not off 10 million miles away on some other planet worrying about things, but that you are interested in each and every one of our lives here and on those watching by television. Uh, May you wrap your arms around each one of us and encourage us and bless us on this Lord's Day, Lord, so that we can go out to this world that needs you more than ever. I thank you for this opportunity to worship in this church. I thank you for each individual here and listening and watching by television. Lord, we commend this week to you. We know the things we've talked about this morning, we will need this week and help remind us of that as we go about our week. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen.